Last Sunday, of course, as we've mentioned, was our Resurrection Sunday. And we did have a good crowd and had a great service in both services. It occurred to me in my preaching that the events surrounding the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus occurred at Passover time, right? And Jesus instituted what we know as the Lord's Supper as a part of that final Passover meal that he had with his disciples. Fifty days after Passover comes Pentecost. Six weeks from today is Pentecost Sunday. And on that day, we're going to have our second Decision Sunday of the year. It's a celebration of the birthday of the church. Some 3,000 responded to the preaching of Peter as he used the keys given to him by the Lord to unlock the door to the kingdom in the preaching of the gospel. And uh, so we're going to have a decision Sunday again on the first Sunday of June, six weeks from today. But in between now and then, what I want to do with my preaching is we're not going back to the series on Luke yet. We will go back to that. But I want to cover the period of time between the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the day of Pentecost. And so that's where our preaching is going to go. So today we're going to be in John chapter 20, and we're going to talk about the encounter with Thomas. Now I'm coming at it from a different angle probably than you would expect. And when we get to the scripture dealing with Thomas, you'll know that I'm about through. That sounds strange, doesn't it? All right. So anyway, just bear with me this morning because I want to talk about some of what Herb mentioned, in fact, in our call to worship as well. But I've entitled this, Jesus is my Lord and my God. Now, as we begin this morning, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to make three claims about myself. Two of them are true. One of them is false. And your job is to pick the claim that is false when I ask you to vote. And my family cannot participate. <laughs> All right? So, claim number one. I once struck out 12 batters in a college baseball game. Okay? Claim number two. I once caught a foul ball at a St. Louis Cardinals baseball game. And claim number three. I once had long hair parted in the middle. All right, now then, raise your hand if you think the first statement is false, that I struck out 12 batters in a college baseball game. Wow, a lot of hands went up. Okay, claim number two, how many of you think that is false, that I caught a foul ball at a Cardinal baseball game? I see two hands. Three hands, okay. And claim number three, I once had long hair parted in the middle. How many of you think that is false? I <laughs> see. So there's some hands on that one too. Okay. The false statement is number two. Which I know probably surprised coach because I didn't pitch in high school. But I pitched in college. Yes. Huh? I had good coaching in high school. That's right, coach. <laughs> okay. 
I always had a good arm, and it, it was never a problem to throw a ball across the plate for me. But I did. Uh, so statement number three is correct, and if you don't believe that, I brought my college yearbook. <laughs> and you can actually, my freshman college picture, not that you can see it from there, but there it is, okay? So you can look at it later if you want to laugh. <laughs> All right, now, you know, I, here's the point. I could probably tell you just about anything and get you to believe it. And you could do the same to me. If we know how to persuade people, we can make just about anything sound believable. I mean, how many people have caught a foul ball in a Cardinal baseball game? Well, here's one right here, okay. I never have, but there's a number of people because there are a bunch of foul balls hit at any Major League Baseball game that people retrieve, okay. And it sounds convincing when I put it up there, and you think, well, yeah, Bill likes the Cardinals, that makes sense, so yeah, he probably did that. But if we know how to persuade people, we can make almost anything sound believable. We can make people believe almost anything, except that we are God. Right? I mean, that's one of the few claims that people know is false. When we hear someone say that he or she is God, we intuitively know that they're not. We don't pause and wonder, hmm, could this person really be God? We don't do that. We know that they aren't God because experience teaches us that people are not God. Now, in order to believe that someone really was God, it would take some pretty convincing proof, don't you think? And yet, make no mistake, Jesus claimed to be God. For instance, he claimed the right and the ability to do things that only God has the right and the ability to do. If you go back at Mark's gospel, the second chapter, for example, and it's in Luke's gospel as well, but we find the story of the paralyzed man who was carried by his friends to Jesus. And he preached about this not long back, and so did I in our series on Luke. But they're hoping that Jesus might heal him. And when they get to the house where Jesus is teaching... They find such a great crowd that they can't get their friend in the house. So what did they do? Yeah, they made a hole in the roof, okay, and they lowered their friend down right in front of Jesus on this pallet. And the Bible says that Jesus said to the man, your sins are forgiven. And the people sitting around, especially the religious leaders, kind of do a collective gasp. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're right. Only God can forgive sins in their totality. You see, each of us can forgive the sins that have been done to us. If somebody punches me in the nose, I can forgive him. But I can't forgive him if he punches you in the nose. Because that would be for you to do. And you can't forgive him for punching me in the nose. That's for me to do. And that's why we say that only God can forgive sins in totality, okay? Only God has the ability to, to declare sins forgiven totally. And yet Jesus said to this man, your sins are forgiven. And when you read the passage, 
It does not give you the impression that Jesus is only referring to the sins that that man had committed against him, against Jesus. But rather he's referring to all of the man's sins in their totality. And that, friends, is something only God has the right and the ability to do. And yet Jesus claimed to have that right and ability also. Or think about the times that Jesus declared that he possessed eternal life. And he would give it to anyone he wished. Now, God is the creator and the giver of life. The Bible says that God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being in Genesis 2 verse 7. And the Bible says of God in Psalm 36 verse 9, with thee is the fountain of life. So God gives it to whom he will. And yet Jesus said such things as, I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. And he said, the Son gives life to whom he wishes, in John 5, 21. He said, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste of death, in John 8, 52. Now those are things that only God has the right to say and the ability to do, and yet Jesus said them and claimed to be able to do them. And he went even further than that. Because not only did he claim to be able to do the things that God can do, he claimed to actually be God. He said such things as, He who has seen me has seen the Father. John 14 verse 9. Now that is not a statement that would be true if I said it. Nor would it be true if you said it. That statement would only be true if one really was somehow God. And Jesus said it. He who has seen me has seen the Father. And then he also said in John 10 verse 30, I and the Father are one. Now that's quite a statement, isn't it? And again, that statement wouldn't be true if I said it. It wouldn't be true if you said it. But when Jesus made that statement, he wasn't mincing words. He wasn't leaving anything open for debate. He, he was making it perfectly clear he believed himself to be God. So Jesus claimed to be God. But secondly, the Bible claims that Jesus is God. The Bible makes the same claim. I think of that wonderful passage we hear nearly every Christmas from Isaiah where the prophet writes, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now those are descriptions of God, but they're referring to who? To Jesus, the Messiah. Those words would apply to Jesus. 700 years before Jesus was even born, those words are written. And 700 years later, Jesus is born, and he claimed to be the fulfillment. He claimed to be God. The Bible says in John 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14 of John 1, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Professor Paul Butler, who wrote a commentary in the Bible study textbook series, has said that this might be considered the greatest single verse in the whole New Testament. 
that he became flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He says, if it's not the greatest, it's certainly one of the greatest because it affirms for us that Jesus was both God and man at the same time. And that, folks, is tremendously important. You see, only a man could die for us. But God can't die. God is eternal. God is immortal. God is incapable of death. God is life. So only a man could die for us. But only a perfect man's death could save us. Since we're sinners. Had Jesus sinned even once, his death would have done us no good. He would have been dying for his own sin. He couldn't have died for ours. So only a perfect man's death could save us. But no man who is only a man is perfect, right? Because all of sin falls short of the glory of God. We know that from our own experience. We try to do right, but we fail. We do things that are wrong. We do things we regret. We do things that we don't understand. And had Jesus only been a man, he would have been just like us in this. He would have had failures and shortcomings. He would have sins for which he would have had to pay. But Jesus was not only man. He was also fully God. While at the same time he was fully man. So the Bible says he lived a perfect life being tempted exactly like we are yet without ever sinning. And so Jesus was able to be exactly what we needed. He was able to be the sacrifice for our sins taking our punishment upon himself and dying our death for us in order to save us. Now, one who was only a man couldn't have done that. Because although he'd be able to die, he wouldn't have been sinless in order to die for others. But one who's only God couldn't have done it either because God can't die. So even though God is perfect and eligible to die for us, he can't die our death. And so only one who's both fully God and fully man could pay the price for our sins. Does that make sense? Only such a one could live a perfect life without ever sinning. Only such a one could then die the death that we deserve so that we might live the life that he deserved. And only Jesus could do that for us. So I think Professor Butler is right when he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us might be the greatest verse in all the New Testament. Now, do I totally understand how Jesus can be fully God and fully man at the same time? No, I don't. I can't fully comprehend that, but I accept it by faith. I say, God, this is what your word teaches, and I don't fully understand it, but I have found your word to be trustworthy in those areas that I don't understand, so I'm going to accept this by faith. And the Bible teaches that Jesus was both God and man. He claimed that he was both God and man. But as I said earlier this morning, it would take some pretty convincing proof to believe that someone really was God. And folks, the resurrection is the proof. The resurrection confirms that Jesus is God. And that's one of the reasons why the resurrection of Jesus is so important. It validated his claims to be God. And the Bible's claim that he is God. And listen, God would not have raised a false teacher from the dead to deceive us. Right? Now that's important. Let me say it again. God would not raise a false teacher from the dead in order to confuse us and to keep on deceiving us. 
We don't have a God like that. God wouldn't do such a thing to us. So the fact God raised Jesus from the dead means that God was putting his stamp of approval on Jesus and his ministry and his teaching and his claims, including the claim to be God in the flesh. You see, Jesus claims he's God. The Bible claims he's God. But it's the resurrection that proves it. That confirms that Jesus is God. It's the resurrection that allows us to accept and believe the claims. Because God raised Jesus from the dead, we can believe Jesus really is who he said he was. And so that's exactly what the apostle that we call Doubting Thomas experienced. So if you have your Bibles this morning, open it to John 20 and verse 24. Jesus had appeared to a group of his followers on that Resurrection Sunday. They rejoiced that he was alive once they saw him. But one of the apostles, Thomas, was not there when Jesus appeared. And so that's where we pick up in verse 24 of the 20th chapter of John. The Bible says, but Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Well, after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Now there's a lot of commentators that point out that Thomas' statement is not just an exclamation of astonishment, as if he's taught totally off guard and he says, Oh my. But rather, this is an exclamation of address. He's calling Jesus his Lord and his God. Thomas understood, I believe, that if God had raised Jesus from the dead, then that meant that God had set his seal of approval on Jesus and that everything Jesus had ever taught or said had been true, including his claim to be God in human flesh. And so Thomas proclaimed, you are my Lord and my God. And we should understand those expressions to be parallel expressions affirming the deity of Christ. It's not that Thomas was calling Jesus two different things, Lord and God, but rather in Jewish thought, God was the Lord and the Lord was God. These were both words used to refer to deity. And so Thomas took the two common words from his Jewish experience to describe deity. My Lord and my God. And he ascribed them to Jesus because the resurrection had vindicated Jesus' claims. Now there are many people today that want to deny Jesus was God. Some of the cults certainly do that, such as the Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe Jesus is a lesser God, and he's a created being, but he's not God in the flesh. But some people, their reasoning, they 
they set up in this logical syllogism, and, and their thinking goes like this. People are not God. Jesus was a person, so Jesus is not God. Okay? That's the way their thinking goes. Now, the minor premise is correct. Jesus was a person. The Bible affirms that. But their major premise, people are not God, is faulty because it assumes more than it can prove. And it's true that most people are not God. In fact, I've never met a person I suspected was God. <laughs> In fact, we can probably go so far as to say that every person we've ever met was not God. Because by definition, God is infinite or finite. And so the ones who don't believe Jesus was God simply assume that since he was a person, he couldn't have been God. But what if God chose to break the rules once? What if the infinite God chose to become finite and chose to become a person so that he could experience the death that sin deserves and in the process save us? If God chose to do that, the result would be Jesus. The one that was fully God and fully man so that he'd be able to die for our sins. And so maybe this morning you need to accept Jesus as your Savior. Perhaps you, like Thomas, are ready to bow before him and proclaim, You are my Lord and my God. You've heard Jesus' own claims that he is God come in the flesh. You've heard the Bible's claims about Jesus saying the same thing. And the resurrection proves it. It confirms it. It's God's stamp of approval on Jesus and his claims because, again, God would not have raised a false teacher to life to confuse us and mislead us. So in the resurrection, God said Jesus' claim is true. Jesus really is Lord and God. So God loved you so much and me so much that he took on flesh so that he could be fully God and fully man, so he could live that perfect life and die for us, so he could pay for our sins and offer us salvation. So, if you need to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning, we give you that opportunity to do so. And I would pray that you would step out in faith knowing that Jesus is the Son of the living God, and the resurrection proves it, that you would repent of any sins you've committed because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that you would have God wash away those sins as you submit to Christian baptism, which is immersion in water, at which time God cleanses you from your sins and places within you the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then you rise to walk in newness of life. If you need to do that today, why don't you meet me down front? If you have already done that and you're looking for a home church that you can be a part of, why not be a part of New Hope? We'd love to have you. Maybe there are other matters that you need to make a public decision about or maybe you simply need to come and have someone pray with you. There are people here that will pray with you. But if you have a decision to make, please make it right now as we stand and as we worship.